Hello there! I'm Hafaya Lalobo, a PhD student at the Duke University Marine Lab, and also your host for PhD, a series on our Seize the Day podcast. If you missed our introductory episode, make sure to go check it out. It's a 10-minute conversation between our podcast team, where we took the opportunity to explain the concept of our Umbrella podcast, our vision and hopes for future series, and motives for being involved in this project. This is the first episode on PhD, a series that we will explore and attempt to demystify the lives of PhD students. We thought it would be timely to launch with an episode about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected PhD students in our program. COVID-19, of course, is the name of the disease that has changed the world as we know it and turned 2020 in the craziest year possibly in all of human history, although the last claim has not gone through peer review yet. Duke has been very supportive of us during this time. We are still funded and we have a variety of resources and people who we can turn to for support. But like most people, PhD students are experiencing added stress and anxiety. That stress and anxiety comes from a variety of sources. I grew up in New York City and have spent pretty much my entire life there up until grad school. My mom's a doctor in New York. She's a doctor in Queens and Long Island. That's Gabrielle Carmine, who was in her first year of her PhD program when New York became the initial hotspot for COVID-19. And let me say quickly that Gabby's mother's fine. The second the pandemic hit in March, obviously New York was impacted pretty quickly. And that automatically spiked some anxiety because having a mother in her mid to late 60s. Just that alone, she's in one of the risk groups. What's great about her hospital is that they had enough PPE so she could stay protected, Um, but it's still very nerve wracking. Just knowing that my mom is in the part of the world that has had some of the highest rates of COVID. But she's, yeah, she's totally fine, but I think it was hard um, because my parents couldn't interact because my dad is also in his mid to late 60s and he has a bunch of pre-existing conditions. And it was also hard not being in New York. You sort of feel a little bit like a traitor for not being with your family. Even if I probably would have been more in the way, I still felt like a traitor to my hometown for not going back. And another thing that has been hard is also being from a city that has been so impacted by this virus and then living in a place where people don't wear masks. And I feel a little bit like I'm being gaslit. Gabby's concerns about her family and being away from her family are common among students, but they take on additional meaning with international students. I talked to Crisal Mendes, a former PhD student and now postdoc at the lab about their unique situation. International students, like everyone else, were struggling with the high levels of uncertainty, isolation, and fear. But also, some of the new immigration rules issued during these stressful times had been increasing our fear and anxiety. Like in my case, the pandemic caught me in the middle of my visa stamp renovation. And as a part of that process, I have to leave the United States at some point to get the stamp in a USA embassy in my home country. Now, the issuance of those stamps is holding up at least until the end of the year. I mean, this means even I have a legal status while being inside of the country, if I leave, I could not come back. 
So if something happens with my family, if my mom or sister gets sick and need assistance, I will have to choose between staying here, continuing with my career and my source of income or going home. And I mean, I'm sure in my case, I choose, I will choose to take care of my family. So we are facing important life decisions in the middle of the pandemic. And adding to this continued fear, which is a lot, we've been witnessing other regulation issues like international students enroll in an online program or have to leave the country. I know this rule was rescinded, but in the meantime, we live with the anxiety and the fear about what's coming next, how our life and careers will be affected by this, will be kicked out of the country, how our families are doing but at home, or if we get sick, we'll have to face this illness all alone far away from home. As an international student myself, I can relate to Crisal's concerns. I spend more time worrying about my family in Brazil than about myself, and I feel like leaving the U.S. for any reason would be a bad idea, even with a valid visa. These kinds of personal circumstances vary among PhD students and shape our individual experiences of COVID-19 in different ways. But for the rest of the show, we're going to talk about an experience that many PhD students have shared. The disruption of carefully crafted research plans to data collection, one of the core activities of PhD program. In the grand scheme of things, and among the many devastating impacts of COVID-19, I recognize that interrupted field work and data collection are not among the most pressing societal concerns. And as you hear, PhD students recognize this as well. Yes, you hear some remorse about lost opportunity and anxiety about getting back on track, but you also hear about adaptation and resilience as students try to learn from these strange times we're living in. So let's get started. Welcome to Seize the Day. All right, so up first, I have Stephanie Valdez. She's a third year PhD student at the Duke Marine Lab. Today, we'll talk a little bit about her life, research, and the challenges of pursuing a PhD during a global pandemic. Steph, welcome to the show. Thanks, happy to be here. So before we begin, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Like, who are you? How old are you? Where are you from? What is one interesting or weird thing about yourself? You know the drill. Of course. So I was born and raised in Washington State. Um, I grew up in the shadow of the Olympic Mountains, so the west side of the state. I was raised by a single mother. It was a magical place to grow up. Had a wonderful childhood. No complaints here. Sounds beautiful. It was. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, I am currently 28. I started my PhD journey at 26. And something odd about myself. I played the trombone in my high school marching band and actually marched a seven-mile Pasadena Rose Parade um, about 10 years ago. That is so cool. Okay. It was fun. And how did you end up at the Duke Marine Lab? So this might be a little bit of a longer story than you anticipated, but (laughs) here it goes. I went to undergrad at the University of Washington. While I was there, I did some internships, volunteering, and in my last couple of years at undergrad, I was a research tech for Dr. Jennifer Rusink. She is the one that opened up my eyes to ecology, um, and ever since then, I've been hooked. So my plans after graduation were really to go into grad school, start immediately, like jump in. But like COVID, life had other plans for me. Doesn't it always? Doesn't it always? And unfortunately, I had a traumatic life experience with some family members, and it made me reevaluate my life and what I wanted to do. 
So I decided to take some time off. Um, I worked some odd jobs, retail, I was dog walker, you name it, I did it. While at that time, I also continued to tech for Dr. Rusink. And I, over that course of like four years, I think it was, I really realized that science was my passion and that was where I got most of my joy from. So I decided to go back to school. And in this process, I sat down with her one day and a couple of other mentors, I think it was over a glass of horchata at the local restaurant. And I showed her my list of like 40 schools and 50 to 60 advisors. That's a little excessive. Yep. Type A personality. <laughs> I was I was all in. Um, so I basically was like, what do I do? How do I go from here? She gave me some advice. I picked my top choices at the time, cold emailed them, started to have conversations back and forth for several months, talked to their grad students, visited. And after that, like, I don't know, it probably took me a little over a year with all of this, um, I decided that Dr. Brian Silliman and the Duke Marine Lab was the place for me. That is so cool. Okay, since you love science so much, it's time to practice your science communication skills. Can you give us, uh, you know, your elevator speech? What is your research about? Great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Broadly, I study the impact foundation species have on their ecosystem. So currently, I focus on what mechanisms dictate species coexistence in North Carolina seagrasses and how that influences community structure and functions in hopes that we can use these interactions to promote recovery and improve restoration success. That was a really good elevator speech. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Practice sometimes. Yep, that, that sounds really cool, but it also sounds really hard on its own. So how has the coronavirus pandemic affected your ability to pursue your work? Yeah, so when this all started, I was in the midst of my second year. And for those not particularly aware of what a PhD second year is like, I spent most of my time finalizing questions, writing proposals, trying to get funding for my field season. So I was like in the midst of this, ready for my field season to come to. And then COVID happened. Um, And COVID, so for those that don't know, our North Carolina seagrass season is roughly March to October. So that's right when the U.S. started to put in their implement, like implementations. And I was really psyched to start doing field work. Like this was going to be my formative field season. I was going to collect all of this data for my dissertation and basically set up the entire thing. And that, of course, you couldn't do it. Totally changed. So I obviously panicked a lot. Like I was like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, I'm not going to. So in the third year, I was like going to prelim early, going to get it out of the way. And then I basically was like, well, that might not happen now. Oh my God. Yeah. So, and Duke rightfully so has been very cautious to letting us go into the field and do any work, um, which I totally respect. But on the other hand, it was like, I wish I could have been in the field and doing all this stuff. So how have you coped with that? So I was really lucky that one of my big chapters and one of my big hopes for my dissertation actually started back in November of 2019. So I had an experiment going, um, which was kind of self-running at this time. Like I didn't get as much data or put as much effort um, as in I didn't keep upkeep it as much as I had hoped. Um, but I, it was there and it should be on track for the most part. Great. Which is great. Like one thing not lost. Right. However, the other three or four experiments that I had anticipated putting in are now pushed off into the future. 
but I've also been really lucky that I live on a marsh. So my system isn't marsh systems, but I live on this really cool marsh that has some seagrass in it. And I thought it was a really unique interaction. I just started taking some data on my like board days off. Like I was just out there and like totally was learning about this new novel system. Um, and even though it might not play a big part of my dissertation, like it probably won't be a chapter. Um, it was really good to start to understand some North Carolina wildlife and marsh systems. So you're collecting data in your backyard. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta do with what I can. <laughs> um, is this going to affect your graduation timeline? Do you think uh, your PhD is going to get delayed? Yeah, so I don't, I'm not totally sure about the ramifications or the full ramifications of what this will mean for my dissertation. Um, in theory, it pushes off my second and third chapters and potentially fourth chapters into next summer because that's our field season again. Um, however, I'm trying in this next month or two to set up some late season experiments that I can have run for the full year and therefore not necessarily lose a ton of data. Right. Did you take anything out of this whole experience or is, was it all just panic moments and just uh, trying to, you know, live one day every day? <laughs> yeah, so I, I like to believe that I'm a pretty positive person. Um, and there were definitely those moments where I'm like, what am I even doing here? This is so stressful. Um, but I really think this ingrained in me a sense of science and how we have to deal with science in general that... And I think any advisor would tell you this. Experiments never go to plan. You have to be ready to adapt and to change your, your situation. And I think for me as a young grad student, COVID was like that defining moment where it was really, you have to change your plans. There's no way around it. So I think uh, spinning this positively, I might not have the dissertation that I had planned six months ago, but... I have an important scientific lesson that I can carry through the rest of my career in life. That's a beautiful, inspirational message of resilience right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And what about on a personal level? You know, we've all had to adapt and figure out ways to cope with all the extra time we spend home and, you know, the social isolation. I, for one, have become crazy plant lady. <laughs> have you developed any new passion or hobby to help you cope and pass the time? Well, as you know, I also enjoy my plants and gardening and my, friends. yes, so many plants. Um, <laughs> it's definitely grown probably exponentially and my garden is looking gorgeous. My pumpkin plants are growing wildly. <laughs> I've currently got the pumpkin like the size of my head already. Super excited about it. Um, but on the other hand, I've always been an avid cooker and baker and in the PhD, the hectic PhD life, that kind of goes to the wayside most weeknights. Right. So I've had the opportunity to kind of pick that back up. Um, I bought myself a cast iron Dutch oven, which I'm really proud of. And I've made so many good meals with that. So that's been a really good stress relief when I'm just like done looking at the computer for the day. That is so cool. Well, it was great talking to you, Steph. Thank you so much for coming to the show. We really appreciate your insight. Thanks again for having me. Up next, I talked to Julia Bingham. She's a fourth-year PhD student at the Marine Lab. Just like in Steph's case, the coronavirus has affected Julia's ability to collect data, and it disrupted her planned timeline. Julia, however, is a social scientist, and so some of the challenges and implications are different in her case. Julia, welcome to the show. 
Thanks, Rafa. I'm so excited to be here. Um, so first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Like, who are you? How old are you? Where are you from? What is one odd or interesting thing about you? You know. Um, sure. I am generally from the West Coast. I'm mm -hmm. 26. Um, so I guess going into my fourth year at the Marine Lab put me on slightly at the younger age for a PhD. I'd skip the master's step. <laughs> um, I feel like a lot of people do that nowadays, though. Yeah, um, I feel like it's more common, but I it did mean that I had a ton of coursework to, to do at the start, especially because I switched fields from natural to social sciences. So I basically, that was going to be my next question. How did a biologist come to the social sciences cottage? <laughs> right. So um, I did intertidal ecology research. So I was doing a lot of stuff with barnacles and snails and tide pools on the rocky intertidal on the Oregon coast with Mark Novak. Um, and Alan Shanks, and as I developed my like undergrad thesis uh, and the research following that, I got really involved with working with a lot of stakeholders. Um, I don't know, I guess I wound up more and more curious about the decision-making side and the outreach and community-based side of coastal sciences. And I was really concerned with understanding how to try to build interdisciplinary approaches to coastal sustainability. Uh, I didn't really know anything about going into the social sciences, but I knew that there were questions there that I felt I wanted to get into, especially because I started feeling like, you know, no matter how much I absolutely love being out doing fieldwork for ecology and getting deep into the natural sciences, it felt like if my data wasn't going to go anywhere because either there was a holdup on the governance side or um, stakeholders aren't represented in the decisions like what 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 would it matter in the long right. right yeah so that that made me think really differently about how I would pursue grad school and I basically just started sending <laughs> qu uh, queries out to different potential PIs who do interdisciplinary work and um, and Grant immediately responded he was like um was a new PI to Duke at that time and building his lab. So I kind of just got lucky of finding someone who <laughs> connected with and was like looking for a student. Yeah. yeah. So I feel super lucky, especially that's since he's perfect. such a great advisor. Yeah. Perfect timing. Okay. That's a good segue then for the elevator speech about what your current research is about. Yeah. Um, so generally speaking, I'm working on the role of social values, knowledge, and equity in coastal management. So there are a few different avenues of interest for me there, and one of them is about how we integrate uh, the values and the knowledge that stakeholders bring um, and that community members bring into coastal management, meaning fisheries governance, restoration practices, conservation, that kind of thing and how we do that in a way that is both representative of all voices um, and all rights holders and basically a little bit more innovative and equitable in terms of <laughs> integrating knowledge potentially beyond the sciences. So that's a very broad general idea and what I my dissertation works on specifically is um, the integration of First Nations knowledge and rights into salmon fishery management or governance on the west coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Um, Julia, can you clarify for our listeners the term First Nations? Uh, yeah, totally. 
So the indigenous communities or people who've been in North America since long before white settlers came, we in the United States might refer to them as Native Americans. Um, and we might call each distinct group a tribe or a nation. Canada um, formally recognizes those indigenous communities as First Nations, uh, like nations of people who are living in the lands that are Canada first. <laughs> right, that makes sense. Um, and do you work with a specific nation or a group of nations? Yes, so the nation I most closely work with is called Tlopiat. Um, they're one of 14 nations indigenous to what is now called Vancouver Island. Um, those nations share a lot of overlap in language and worldview, and as a group are the New Chalneth. So out of the New Chalneth, I work mostly with Tlopiat, especially with some of their fishery and natural resource admin. But I most closely work with an organization called Haum. So that's an organization which does the formal management of the commercial fisheries for Tlopiat and for four other New Chalneth nations. Uh, each nation and New Chalneth as a whole has their own traditional governance structure and they absolutely have a robust means of managing their fisheries. Um, Haum is there as basically an agency that the Canadian government or that DFO uh, more officially recognizes as a fishery management capacity. Thank you for that clarification. Now, your research topic sounds fascinating, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it also sounds like you're very dependent on being physically present at your research site, right? It's very site-specific. So how has the pandemic affected your ability to pursue this work? Right, so yeah, it's a super, super local specific case study. Like the idea is it's more broadly relevant to other coastal management questions, right? in terms of how do we do sustainability and rights recognition, value, knowledge integration. But to do this specific work well requires me to be on site. And I can talk more about why that's necessary, but basically the main thing the pandemic has done has prevented me from getting up there, right? So right. I'm going into my fourth year. This whole year was supposed to be field work, like all the time, basically living up there. Usually I go up for a couple of weeks at a time to do some research planning, some just like interactions with people, building trust, building the research plan collaboratively with the community. So I'm a white researcher, right? And I'm walking into an indigenous space. And even though I'm also doing observations of the DFO process, that's like Canadian fisheries governance body. So I'm doing observations of the DFO process, the white or non-indigenous um, spaces, like stakeholder spaces. My primary collaborators are Indigenous and the First Nations concerns are central to this particular research case study. And so it's really important that I give agency in my research to those Indigenous leaders of like how to make sure this research turns around and benefits them and that I'm not taking knowledge that's not mine or misrepresenting or trying to tell a story that's not mine. And that when I'm trying to understand how Indigenous knowledge is integrated, that means I need to understand what that is. And so it's also learning from them continuously. So it takes a lot of pre-work. Mm -hmm. And that pre-work so far has looked like pretty frequent, at least every couple of months, visits per anywhere from one to three weeks at a time. But the transition to in-person data collection, which looks like extended interviews and sitting in on meetings, um, and basically being there every day just to, it's, it's institutional ethnography, it's a form of ethnography, so you have to be there. Mm -hmm. um, that was supposed to be trips in the mostly spring and fall, because that's the peak, like either 
planning or assessment <laughs> right. season for, for the fishing season. And to be there from anywhere from two to five months at a time. At one point I was considering just being there for nine months straight to stay through the fishing season. Wow. Um, and so none of that, none of that yeah. happened this year, nothing. Wow. And how have you coped with that? <laughs> it's just funny because the question, like, how are you dealing with it? My, my initial response is like, oh, you mean emotionally? Because <laughs> that's been a roller coaster. I can feel um, the nervous laugh. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a, it was really, really, really concerning at first. And I mean, I pretty much immediately was like, all right, this means that I have a minimum of an extra year. So we're in a five-year program, right? So I like was already thinking that this kind of in-depth, long-term, place-based research that requires so much field work, so much long-term work before I can even get to analysis, so much collaborating with other humans. <laughs> That combined with having had to take a bunch of coursework at the start, I already anticipated thinking, all right, I might need more than five years. And then the pandemic started and I was like, oh, I need more than five years. This is, I, I might lose a field season. I might lose three months. Right. <laughs> um, so I probably will need into my sixth year, if not the full thing. We're, I mean, it's been months more than that. And there's, you know, the U.S. is on the uptick for cases. There's no real end in sight for when I get to go back up. And one of the biggest concerns I had, like, honestly, the thing that scared me the most was like, okay, if I'm gone for that long and they don't see my face, they won't think that I'm dedicated or there or someone to work with or someone to trust. Like all of that free work of the last year and a half, two years goes out the window. Luckily, yeah, luckily that doesn't seem to have been the case. Um, I have a wonderful local liaison up there who works within the Tlopia community and works with and for home as well. And my other contacts up there have been very gracious about this. And we've been working together to kind of shift what the permissions look like for me to sit in on virtual meetings. So after the first two-ish months, they started changing their meeting structure and moving from all in person to all online, which I didn't expect, honestly, like the DFO space is well equipped for doing virtual work. I mean, that's a federal government space. A lot of governments are having to adjust to that. The First Nations space, it's not like traditional practice in uh, New Chalmuth, uh governance structures, including Tlokwiat, which is the specific community that I partner with, is to do everything in person. Like that's the formality. Everything is traditionally done via oral storytelling, um, via in-person communication, shared meeting spaces, even in like formal governance spaces that now look very much like a Western government space, even those have some element of traditional ceremonial practice to them. And that has to do with framing everything within the colloquial worldview, right? Everything is very relational there. All of their belief and knowledge systems and communication and governance, all of that has to do with relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's been a lot of resistance to doing things virtually, which means that things take longer up there. But with how things like Zoom and other platforms have progressed to be able to so easily hold virtual meetings that are more than a phone call, right? Um, some of them have been really responsive to that because they can see each other's faces. So you can see, you can still have some element of 
uh, personal communication that would otherwise be lost. That's good. Yeah. And so that was promising um, to know that they'll still be doing some meeting spaces. And so now the process is about getting permission to sit in on those meeting spaces. There is some sensitivity about bringing an outsider into their governance spaces. And so uh, it's taking a little bit longer to make sure that the other five nations with whom are totally okay with me being there. It sounds like verbally that's all been confirmed, but there needs to be formal recognition. In the meantime, there have been other third party hosted meetings with broader stakeholders and the non-Indigenous stakeholders that I've been able to sit in on, which have been fascinating. And I could at this point start interviewing DFO folks remotely. Well, that's good. I'm glad there's a silver lining there, you know, that you're able to at least keep going, right? Yeah. Even if it's a slower pace than you thought. Yeah. And talking about moving forward, let's go back to the coping question. <laughs> but now uh, the way that you interpreted it the first time. I know you like to run a lot. Has that just like increased exponentially or have you developed any new hobbies? How have you coped from, you know, a mental health perspective? Yeah, I mean, running has always been, like, ever since the start of undergrad, um, when I stopped playing soccer regularly, running has been key to my mental health. (laughs) When when the pandemic shut down the gyms, that was terrible, because I also prefer to split some of my cardio at the pool or on a bike, and I like to lift, so I usually am a little bit ridiculously active and it's definitely a coping mechanism oh man that was so jealous <laughs> with wine and chocolate <laughs> oh there's been plenty of that too um the other day I ate a pint of ice cream so you know <laughs> but um yeah so there's been foot workouts which have been good but it's so hot now it's hard to do and otherwise I uh did put in a garden this year. I had gotten one started last year and it went pretty well and I learned a bunch from that experiment. So I've made it much bigger this year because I'm just around. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've got fresh garden veggies almost every day. I did, I jumped on the sourdough train. Yeah, I would say baking, gardening and running have always been good coping mechanisms for me. That I just ramped up. Yeah. And the occasional, you know, tear-filled phone call to my mother. <laughs> oh, yeah, those are pretty normal, too, I think. <laughs> but uh, gardening and baking seems to be popular. Yeah, yeah. Well, Julia, thanks so much for sharing your experience with us, and best of luck with uh, whatever developments come your way. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting me just chat on and on. <laughs> my pleasure. We hope you enjoyed our first episode of PhD, a series in our podcast, Seize the Day. From now on, we will release two episodes a month from various ongoing series, and our next release will be the first episode in our Conservation and Development series. If you want to know more about our plans, make sure to check out our introductory episode released last week, or visit our website at sites.nicholas.duke.edu slash seize the day. A quick reminder that it is seas, as in portions of the ocean that are partly surrounded by land, and not seas, the verb to grab. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Seize the Day Pod and subscribe to our listserv at podcast-ml at duke.edu. 
This podcast was written and produced by me, Rafaela Lobo, with great input from our Seize the Day podcast team, Lisa Campbell, Janelle Miller, and Stephanie Hillsgrove. Many thanks to Jeff Pretty, our IT support. Joe Morton composed and recorded our beautiful theme song, and Stephanie Hillsgrove is the talent behind our artwork. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. Thank you for listening.